Pray with me, beloved. Dear God, in this moment, I commend into your hands my spirit. I pray for a mighty move of your loving spirit, Lord God, in this place. May I decrease that you may increase. Let it not be my words, but let it be yours, dear God. We are open to hear a word from you. In Christ our beloved, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, Kenilworth Union Church. I'm so blessed and honored to be with you today. And as you know, during the seasons of Lent and Epiphany, Reverend Bill and Reverend Christine have been preaching a sermon series on those characters from our scriptural storybook that have gone through the years of Christendom without a name. Now, you recognize who I'm talking about when I mention King David. You know Moses, you know King Solomon, Abraham, John the Baptist. Even Balaam is known for his talking donkey from the book of Numbers. But yet there are so many in the book, in, in Scripture, whose names go unsaid, identities unearthed, and stories left unclaimed. We've been exploring and unearthing these stories and identities, and so today we will seek the voice of God in this next unnamed personality. And this pericope comes from the Gospel of Matthew, entering into the climax of the Passion story. Hear ye these words. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to him, who do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. And may the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. I don't know about you today, but I'm glad to be on the right side of the blood. Now, I have to tell you all, I come from a different liturgical background than what is usual at Kenilworth Union Church. 
in my liturgical background, it is okay and encouraged that if the preacher says something that makes you think of the grace of God, it's okay to say, thank you, Lord. And it's okay that if, if, if I say something that makes you think about how we have fallen as a people, but yet God is gracious, it's okay to say, mercy, Lord. And if I say something that doesn't quite hit you, your ear right, or you don't know where I'm going, it's okay to say, help him, Lord. <laughs> now I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord. Turn to somebody else and say, neighbor. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord. Oh, let's be grateful for the presence of God. Now, when it came to what would be seen as my debut sermon here at KUC, I felt a bit of wariness for the approach and the content of this sermon. When you're preaching uh, against such blessed and anointed theologians such as Reverend Bill, Katie, and Christine, and in the shadow of the anointing of such ministerial pioneers like Gil Bowen, you can't help but feel a little bit of trepidation. One might say that fear covers your backside and anxiety covers your front. A, fe a spirit of fear creeps into every thought, revelation, and moment of judgment. And as you type this sermon after months of antagonizing angst and excitement, you question every word, every punctuation, and every clause, causing you to overlook every word choice, secretly looking for more eloquent-sounding synonyms to match with Bill's expansive library. Fear has a way of captivating us and enslaving our actions to the point where we don't recognize ourselves. Fear likes to present itself in terrifying and daunting shapes and forms of uncertainties and what-ifs that drive us mad, questioning next steps and motives and forming escape plans. Fear is what arrests many of the characters in this passion play. Fear drives the disciples out of the garden for the safety of their own lives. Like Scooby-Doo, after turning to see yet another ghost, ghoul, or goblin, the disciples scurry away in a frenzy with one thing on their mind, we gotta get out of here. Fear is even what arrests Pilate, this cruel and stubborn ruler. In John's gospel, we find Pilate saying, I find no case against him but fear infiltrates this Roman ruler. But there was one who in the face of fear, there was one who in the face of oppression, one who in the face of pure evil spoke out, here we find our unnamed saint for the day, Pilate's wife. Now the only verse in the canonical text given to her depicts her not directly, but it's a note delivered by a messenger. And while her husband paces back and forth, caught in a moral dilemma, weak in himself and young in his rule, efficient but cruel in his leadership, deceptive and stubborn, known for his quickness and severity of punishment. See, Pilate was known for his youth and his short fuse. Now, we get to know Pilate by several lines of uh, text, of uh, questioning between him and Jesus. But the love of his life, we get one indirect verse. See, she was the yin to his yang, and he was the toast to her butter. And I want us to park ourselves for a second right in the middle of this marriage because the juxtaposition of these two in this moment is critical for us today. 
See, Pilate is faced with a dilemma. And Roe, in her book, Pontius Pilate, writes, if Jesus was just and Pilate condemned him, he would offend the gods and the reputation of Rome. Yet, if he did not give the crowd what it wanted, things might get out of hand and he might be reported to Tiberius and lose his job, of course. Now, now Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent of any possible charge that remotely deserves death. Pilate can see it in his countenance. It's in his answers. It says that Pilate wondered greatly. He asked, what evil has he done? Pilate knows that the answer to his question is none. So what stands in the way of him releasing Jesus? Well, it's the religious leaders and the elders who had had enough of this rogue preacher. They go as far as to question Pilate's loyalty to, to Caesar and to duty and to Rome. See, the fear of losing his own station, his status, his place, the fear of being dethroned from his place in the world takes place over his moral backbone. He overlooks the innocence of the accused in place for his seat in society. But yet... We have a voice that cries out in the wilderness of despair and fear, a voice that, sp that speaks out against the misuse of justice and power, a voice that speaks with compassion, love, and mercy. We have Pilate's wife who was stored away in some room. She sends a note to her husband. Now, let's not glaze over the importance of her presence. Now, it's important that we remember that this is happening around the time of Passover, and it was customary for the governors to take up residences in, in, uh, in their place of governance during these times to squash any sort of uh, rebellion against Roman power. But typically, wives weren't there. Some have speculated that she actually was interested in Judaism and was curious about this Jesus of whom she had heard of. Some have suggested that she had seen him on the road at uh, one of his stops on his international sermon crusade. She heard about Jesus, and she was intrigued. In the midst of this melee of chaos, guards entering in and out, Jesus being dragged from Pilate to Herod and then back to Pilate. Here is Pilate's wife, and she awakes from a dream, and in a post-haste, she has a messenger grab her a ballpoint pen and a scratch sheet of paper, and she scribbles the note saying, Have nothing to do with this man, for I have suffered a great deal over him because of a dream. Now, what was the dream? What did you see? Many people have tried to fantasize what the dream was. Seventh-day Adventist theologian Ellen G. White, or as I call her, Auntie Ellen, speculates Pilate's wife was not a Jew, but as she looked upon Jesus in her dream, she had no doubt of his character or his mission. She knew him to be the prince of God. She saw him on trial in the judgment hall. She saw the hands tightly bound as the hands of a criminal. She saw Herod and his soldiers doing their dreadful work. She heard the priests and rulers filled with envy and malice madly accusing. She heard the words, we have a law and by our law he ought to die. She saw Pilate give Jesus to the scourging after he declared, I find no fault in him. She heard the condemnation pronounced by Pilate and saw him give Christ up to his murderer. She saw the Christ up, the cross uplifted on Calvary. She saw the earth wrapped in darkness and heard the mysterious cry, it is finished. Now this is speculation, but 
What we can be certain of is the dream that she had left her with with the certainty of the innocence of Jesus and any judgment other than Christ's relief to be in justice, and it bothered her to her core. At this moment, as her husband was being bent by the wheel of hypocritical and envious religious leaders, of power, Pilate's wife stands for what is right and holy. She stands up against a system of violence and tyranny. She stands up against a system of exclusion and power plays. Pilate's wife in this moment channels the courage of Shifra and Pua from Exodus, the Hebrew midwives who faced off with Pharaoh by hiding the Hebrew baby boys instead of killing them. She channels the courage of Rahab, who faces off with Jericho patrol authority by housing two Hebrew spies before they take over the city of Canaan. And she channels the the courage of Esther, who faced off against Haman, who was unrighteously hell-bent on destroying her race because of his own pride. In this moment, we see the wife of Pilate in a moment of divine strength, courage, and beauty standing up against a system of oppression, cruelty, and suffering. And my question for you today is, what if we became more like Pilate's wife instead of Pilate? What if the suffering of others bothered us so much to the core that it caused us to leave our station and to speak out? What if the oppression and the put down of God's beloved drove us to action? What if the pain and despair of God's creation drove us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and participate in the suffering, not as a surveyor and a spectator, but as an agent of change? What if seeing the cries of help caused us to speak out, act out, and move out? Too often we are so comfortable in our spaces, places and races that we turn blind eyes to our siblings of humanity who are crying out for relief. We turn our heads to paradise while many purposely outside of our gaze are stomped upon by systems of oppression, violence, and hate. We focus on our bubbles of comfort and safety while many just blocks away from us starve, giving up whatever items they have just to have one more meal and a moment of warmth. How often are we captivated in fear by other, how others feel about us? Fear about losing friends and losing social status, so much so that we don't speak out when others use their power or or influence for wrong. We silence ourselves and allow ourselves to be a part of the problem because that's not our fight. We want to save face. We want to save space, living like Pilate, captivated by the fear of our circumstance instead of speaking out as Christ has called us to righteously upturning tables of injustice and manipulation. What if we took upon ourselves truly the yoke of Jesus that is light and easy but drives us not away from the sufferer but towards them, not in pity but in loving compassion to say, I'm with you, I'm here, beloved. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus and we are called to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, am I truly doing all that I can to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, learning to do good, correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause? See, I heard a verse that once said, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Are we really living a Galatians 6-2 life that bears the burdens of others, putting the care of others before ourselves, loving God with all of our being and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Karl Barth, the 
Notable 20th century theologian commented about his entrance into the Social Democratic Party by saying it was no longer possible for me personally to remain suspended in the clouds above the present evil world, but rather it had to be demonstrated here and now that faith in the greatest does not exclude, but rather includes within it work and suffering in the realm of the imperfect. The faith that manifests within us, the love that is poured into us, drives us to participate in this broken realm with those who suffer and cry out for relief. We are pulled by love to bring relief, comfort, and peace. We are, by God's grace, inclined to live with and to love on and to lavish upon our neighbors great joy, assistance, and support. See, listen here, love is an action word. The love of Christ that lies within you awakes a passion a fire and a tenderness for those of God's beloved whom have been put down, stomped on, and rolled over. See, the responsibility of the believer is their responsibility. I'm going to say that one more time because you may have missed it. The responsibility of the believer is their responsibility. Our job is to allow the Holy Spirit to live within us, to drive us to action, that when we come across suffering and pain, we can't help but say something about it, that when we see somebody going through a situation that we can't help but a love on them we are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus driving out uh, and, and uh, driving us to correct the misuse of power and to retain justice I know of another great dream that caused cosmic disturbance in which the tides of social ch social change hinged a dream that was based on the ideas of equity and community this dream was based on unity and togetherness, a dream based on the love of Christ being shared, a dream based on the unity of shared humanity instead of exclusion and indifference and division. Reinhold Niebuhr tells us, justice is love and realizable action. So what dream has the Holy Spirit put on your heart today? For what cause has the Holy Spirit called you to speak out? How are you called to be loving to someone in a new way? How are you called to speak out in a world-changing way? How are you called to use your privilege and power to ease the burden and pains of your neighbor? Oh, this isn't in the script, so those people in the tech room are going to have to forgive me. Power and privilege are not bad words. It's what you do with them that makes it bad or good. Whose voice can you listen to today so that you can love across lines of tension and division? How are you called to be the hands and feet of Jesus today? How are you called to be a pilot's wife in a world full of pilots? How are you called to live in courage and not driven by fear. I promise I'm getting ready to close. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And a sound mind, oh, you all missed that. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. By the way, 
Christendom has given her a name. She is not a name to us. The apocryphal writers called her Claudia Procula. She was canonized as a saint by the Eastern Church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.